Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a heads up that this episode contains themes and strong language that some listeners may find upsetting. first robbery was done quite literally at the end of my road. It was cobbled together. I think as they, they went on, they became a little bit more sophisticated and developed. I bought a gun in Smith's toy store. I do know I'd written the note. That was the important bit to me, was that I'm not here to hurt you or anyone in the bank. You normally go into these places dressed as a courier and how could I make myself effectively disappear? So I'm one guy. I'm not in a a high-powered vehicle. I don't have accomplices. I don't have all these things that you imagine from the the movies. I'm one guy and I need money and I need it quickly and I need it without incident. I thought disguise would seem to be the natural way to go so I can go in and I can queue as a builder, a painter or a courier, any number of things. I'd have always the buttons and zips and everything removed from items and I'd have them velcroed. My real stroke of genius was a a hat. Sawed hair into it so it looked like it was in a ponytail. I collected beard shavings from my own beard so they would look natural and created what looked like a beard so that when I walked out of the bank I could rub my face and the beard would disappear. The hat would come off so I'd go from a long-haired guy with ponytail to a skinhead or shaven head and obviously the uniform would come off and I would be somebody very, very different. And then I'd be on a push by Camley, cycling away. My thoughts were, no matter how fast the response time of the guards, unless it's within 30 seconds to a minute, they're going to be looking for somebody very different. And I'd know all the, the routes because I'd know the area, from again, from working as a, as a messenger. And so I'd be able to disappear. You're listening to I'm Not Here to Hurt You, Episode 1, The Accident. I'm Kevin Doyle, and in my almost 20 years as a journalist, I've covered all sorts of stories, big and small. Every now and again, you meet somebody who's hard to figure out, and in this story, that person is John O'Hegarty. This was a project that I thought would take two weeks at most. It's been over a year. The reason for that... I think it's that when John first came into studio, he had only ever retold his story in shorthand. They say life is a series of moments. Well, he's had a lot of extraordinary moments, and now I know that he has perhaps unintentionally buried many of those memories, and with good reason. 
He was an academic scholar with all the opportunities you could hope for in life and somehow became Ireland's most prolific bank robber. Yesterday's podcast on the Kinhans is doing really well, but uh, I definitely think... So let me take you back to the 5th of May 2022. It was a time when the newsroom was focused on the FBI's attempts to bring down the Kinnaton cartel and for a bit of light relief, there was the Waggata Christie trial. So I'm just wondering if anyone else has anything they want to throw on the table? I went to an ordinary production meeting with Garrett Mulhall and Mary Carroll, who work with me on the Indo Daily podcast. And I brought an email. Let me think, John, I'm just going to read you the email and tell me what you think, because I could explain it. And, okay. and I would probably... Hello, Mr. Peter Vandermeersch. Peter is my boss here at the newspaper. We have spoken before concerning my documentary for Belgian television. However, I have a very different question for you. I'm looking for an Irish journalist. More importantly, a story. For years, journalists have asked him, in exchange for money, if they could tell his story. But he found him too sensational, and he avoided the media. He never wanted to sell his story. So we saw each other last weekend in Leuven, where he came to visit me. And he revealed to me that after all these years, he's ready to come out with his story. But only to an Irish journalist from a quality newspaper or magazine. In his own words, he wants to break the taboo surrounding being an ex-criminal and an ex-prisoner. He feels heavily stigmatized even after all these years. If you know a suitable journalist in Ireland who is interested in an interview with John, I can put them both in touch. Thank you for listening to my request. Sincerely, Isabel. And Isabel, here we are. <laughs> All these months later, after you, you, you wrote that email. Yes. How did you get to know John first when you were in college? That was a long time ago. Um, I'm 47 now and I was 18 years old. It was my first year uh, away from my parents uh, studying in Leuven history. The academic year was just started for one or two months. And I met John at a party. We started talking and myself, I always had the feeling that I made a click with the Irish. I think Irish people are storytellers and they have a good sense of humor and um, I, I made a very, very easy, very easily a, a click with him. So we spent time with each other and with other friends of his, I think, for six to seven, eight months in Leuven, quite intensively, because it's the first year eh, away from parents. And he was studying philosophy at the High Philosophy Institute. But then after a year, I decided to move to Amsterdam and continue uh, other studies there. And then we lost track of each other. And then I heard from Stefan, his former housemate, that he moved back to Dublin. And we had nothing yet at that time. Eh? There was no email address. There was no Facebook. There was no Google. So we lost complete track. Ten years later, I uh, Google was there, Facebook was there, and I thought like, how oh, how must it go with John? I wondered what what is he doing now and blah blah blah. So you 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 started. I don't know if you did it, <laughs> but uh, I started doing um, research on former people that I met when I was younger. You know, when I was a student, and so I was doing research on John as well, like um, John O'Haggerty. And the first thing I found out was all these articles. Uh, about the politest bank robber of Ireland. And I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. 
What was he like in college? John was always funny. Whenever you met him, you had the feeling there was um, a, a very light energy around you. You know, it was a very positive energy, a light energy. And he had always had a good sense of humor on things that happened in life. He was also a very reflective person. And in my sense, he's somebody who is very sensitive. It is sometimes as if he sees things and feels things sometimes before someone else could do. And he he's really well in explaining those things. He's very good at reflecting. So he's a very clever uh, man, an intelligent man, well-hearted and um, open to experimenting uh, with all the philosophers, philosophy students at that moment. Like Michel Foucault wasn't afraid of uh, trying out soft drugs eh? things like that like like flirting with it like what does it do with you but more in an investigative way not in an um, abusive way and yeah. tell me Isabel what did you think when you discovered via Google that he was in prison I couldn't believe it that was a shock that was a shock because I think I saw in John maybe somebody who well, you have the general law in a country and he would flirt with it. I'll be honest, eh? like doing something wrong, but he wouldn't harm a person. So John, for me, was I saw him always as a very good-hearted person towards other people. If you are in need, John will be there to help you. So when I read it, of course, in the newspaper, I couldn't believe it. But when it said the politest bank robber, then I could say, oh yeah, because he was always very polite in everything. When he talks, he's, he's, he's very um, eloquent uh, and friendly. So um, so that that is a part of it I understood. <laughs> and the rest, I didn't, and it made me cute. I really wanted to know how he was. And that's when years later, because first I had the intention, should I write to him? He's in prison now. I didn't do it. Because I didn't want to feel a woman writing a prisoner. That's, that, that gives another, how do you call it, association. <laughs> you have these women admiring prisoners and they write to them letters and things like that. So um, for years, I, it was in the back of my mind, John is now there in prison and what happened to him? So the, the curiosity stayed. I was only aware of what he experienced when I then finally went to Dublin, went to Bray. and um, But to be fair and to be sincere, my first question really was, how are you? What happened to you? How come? He did all his years he was sentenced to. And I remember that he told me that um, one of the guards told him or asked him, like, why, why did you do the full sentence? You are one of the prisoners that could have asked to become free earlier. I'm pretty sure that he really did it, to have done it in the most pure way, to, to finish the punishment that was given to him and then afterwards being able to let it go. And I think that's the difficulty. Then he went out of prison, but he couldn't let go because society is not ready um, to accept ex-prisoners or ex-criminals. And that, uh, that's the experience he has. We decided to take Isabel up on her offer, and a few weeks later, John came into the Irish Independent offices. From what Isabel had told me, I was fascinated to meet him, 
but I also wanted to find out if he was serious about telling his full story and about that moment in 2002 that changed everything. Thanks for coming in. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah. Come on in, yeah. Squeeze in, yeah. Why are you doing this podcast or what do you hope to get out of it? Um, what do I hope to get out of it? I hope to tell my story um, for a number of reasons, to bring some closure to some things for myself personally, but also to, to open up possibly a discussion on other things. Um, and it, 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 it was time, quite frankly, it was just time. Some of what we're going to talk about, you've bottled up for a long time. Is that fair to say? I would have, yeah, I would have, I would have. Why do you think that is? Circumstance, um, largely. I was in a position where um, for the last 10 years anyway, I was trying to focus on on other aspects of, of, of my life. And um, this is, some of that emotional stuff just wasn't ready to be unpackaged. Should we say? So we're going to unpackage some of that, but I think to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. Tell me about your upbringing. So I would have spent my early years up until about the age of 12, um, raised in Tala. And after that, we'd moved on to Dundrum. Very happy childhood. Um, I think you'd said to me just before we went on air there, um, like yourself, you know, nothing notable. And that's not a negative. Yeah, I I had everything I needed. I had everything a child can ask for. So finished up by doing the Leaving Cert quite young. I was 16. Fairly mediocre results and felt I was a bit young to, to... to make any life choices and then went on to to further studies yeah so you chose journalism first I did I enjoyed writing my uncle had been a journalist for his his, um, early part of his career it was something that attracted me so yeah it was good and I I worked for a little while in the in the Tribune in the Sunday Tribune yeah yeah. what kind of stuff did you do just doing I I was there for a summer Um, so I was out on on work assignments with the photographer one day and then with the sub-editor the next and then Funnily enough, um, just coming back to me now, my only real assignment um, at the end of the summer, I was sent out to sit in the forecourts and do uh, court reporting. So that was your first taste of the courts? That was my first taste of the courts, little did I know. I pretty much went straight from the journalism into the first year of an undergraduate of, uh, in philosophy. You went to Trinity and then you went to a fairly prestigious college university in, in Leuven in Belgium as well. So, you know, you're, they're high-end colleges. Did you feel you fitted in? Did you enjoy that life? Yeah, I did. Um, especially my experience over in Louvain. Beautiful little town near Brussels. Uh, medieval university. I was loving every minute of it. I was being given lectures by people whose books I was reading. So, you know, the, the, these were... These were um, heavy hitters when it came to academic philosophy. I left Belgium after a number of years to come back to Trinity to do the Masters. Yeah, so it was going pretty well for you. It was going, it was going great, yeah. yeah. 
was it when you finished up college, you set up this courier business as a, side, a kind of a side earner? Since a kid, I was in love of anything mechanical, bikes particularly. And I set up the company in 99. It was a no-brainer. I could be out, outdoors, fresh air, loved exercise. And it was a nice compliment to the, 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 the heavy studying that was involved and required of doing a master's degree, particularly on the subject I'd chosen, because typical of me, I couldn't have chosen something nice and easy. I went for something quite um, obtuse. We worked out of the back of a van off Pier Street. So we had no premises. And then we got a premises. We were going maybe eight months at that point. And, and it took off. It took off really well. So year one, end of year one, I had 14 people working for me. And then we get to the accident. What we do you do. remember about that day? I remember it was a Friday. It was raining. All the guys were out in the road delivering parcels. It was Fridays were always busy. And they always got busy about four o'clock. And then if you throw a bit of Dublin rain on top of that, um, yeah, it can get a bit hectic. I was on the radio in the office. I think it had come to about five o'clock and we kind of knew where we were at for the rest of the evening. Um, but I knew I had to go out in the road and help the guys because they were just getting bogged down with, with parcels. And um, I went out on the road, picked up a few parcels. Everything was all, all good up to that point. So what happens next? I crossed Bagot Street the wrong way. Unfortunately, I was technically contra flow, even though I was just crossing the street. Um, a pedestrian came out from behind a, a, a parked vehicle. I went to cycle behind him. And bearing in mind when I say cycle, I'm talking about just off walking pace. You know, I'm doing maybe six, seven miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, tops. He clocked me out of the corner of his eye at the last moment and went to anticipate me going in front of him, stepped back and in doing so, fell over my front wheel. And obviously the bike made contact with him then at that point. He fell back, landed on his backside, and then hit, went back and hit his head. Can you still see all of that Yeah, today? I can see it very clearly, yeah, where he landed. I can still feel the impact. Even as light as it may have been, I, can, I, could, I could feel the impact. You know? That was the moment that uh, everything changed. Initially, he went back, he had received what appeared to be a, a, a graze or cut on his head. Um, his glasses fell out of his front pocket, I remember that. I remember picking them up from him. But, you know, he, he picked himself up and, well, he picked himself up after, obviously, we, we made sure he was okay to stand up and he insisted he was fine. Um, lovely man, lovely, lovely man. Can you remember his name? I can. His name was Roger. We had some conversation about calling an ambulance and I very much wanted him to. And he, did, he really didn't want to. And I said to him, look, what eventually 
got him to go get one was I said, Roger, I, I'm, I'm only new in a, in a business and I wouldn't like anything to risk, you know, affecting my insurance. Would you, you know, would you just go and get it checked out? You're sure it's half five, you know. And he went in the ambulance. Um, I remember him actually chatting to me about, I think it was his daughter or his granddaughter, not his granddaughter, his daughter it would have been. And she had been over near where I'd been studying. And, you know, so we were chatting away and... Um, he was actually a little bit, little bit peeved that he had to get the ambulance. <laughs> More, I think, because it was taking up time and it was a Friday evening, it was raining. And I don't need this, a, a bit of a plaster, I'm fine. So, yeah, he got, he got the ambulance. There was quite a bit of commotion. People come out of the shops and, you know, I, had, I, I went out to see him in Vincent's Hospital maybe about an hour and a half, two hours after. In you know, I, I imagined he'd be sitting in in a chair, looking a bit disgruntled. So you're obviously concerned enough, though. I was concerned enough. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, as I said, I'd, I'd built up a bit of a rapport with him over the, the twenty minutes or so, chatting to him, and I, of course, I had a concern. I I I knocked the man down, whether it was whatever the circumstances leading up or however serious it was. I my actions ended up in in somebody on the ground. So of course, I wanted to go out and make sure he was okay. And when I got to Vincent's, um, a nurse asked me to wait for a moment and then she asked me to escort her to a room where there was a doctor. And I looked, the minute I walked into the room, I looked with the friend I said, um, I'm just here to see somebody I think should be waiting in, in A&E. And they said, yeah, yeah, did you have the accident earlier uh, on? I said, yeah. And they said, we've uh, some bad news for you, John, unfortunately. Um, my question was taken to Bowman's um, about 20 minutes ago. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, I, I had a bicycle accident with the guy. He did a cut in the head. It must be somebody else. And he said, no, no, that, that's, that's, that's the gentleman, John. And I, I was arguing with him for, for a couple of minutes. Going, no, no, you have this wrong. This is mixed up identities. Or... So, yeah, he had been removed or taken to Beaumont um, because obviously they weren't happy with, with something and Beaumont was treating him for um, I believe it was it was it was brain related um, or head related obviously um, and that then began a, a yeah that then began a a whole other a debate. whole other yeah was there some contention afterwards, though, about that conversation that you recall having with him? There was a lot of contention about a lot of things after that, um, Kevin, yeah. Some people, I don't know who they were. I don't know what their role was. I stayed in touch with Roger's business partner um, throughout. Um, obviously, I'd gone out to see Roger that night in the hospital. Uh, when you say contention over the conversation, I'm just wondering what you're referring over the, to. The conversation around the ambulance and how how well I suppose you describe that he was at the scene. So this was kind of slightly two separate things. So one being, did his injuries um, look serious? To me, they didn't. Um, obviously, I'm not qualified, but they 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 didn't. And he was conscious, and he was he was adamant he didn't want to get an ambulance. But then on the other hand, when you say there was a bit of contention, there was a, obviously that started the process then, not the process, but that started 
what turned into quite a lengthy um, period where public, certain members of the public, um, the media, um, unfortunately, got some of the details of the accidents very wrong uh, in some cases. Um, to give you an example, um, it was reported somewhere that I was six foot one. I think you'll, you'll confirm, uh, confirm that's Kevin, accurate. that's not by any means accurate. I had dreadlocks, I had an English accent, and I hit them at up to 40 miles an hour, which is, I'd like to meet them, anybody that does 40 miles an hour in a push bike, it's a, it's a good speed to be doing. So yeah, uh, they were, there was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff being, being thrown around. Um, but from the point of view of his injuries, no. Roger Handy's accident did briefly make headlines. Liveline is one of Ireland's most popular talk shows. And on the 4th of December 2002, Roger's daughter Leslie went on radio to talk about her father as he was in hospital fighting for his life. Hello, good afternoon and you're very welcome to Liveline. Leslie, good afternoon to you. Hi. It's your father that was... Uh... It is, yeah. And we know, we heard he was on a life support machine. How is he now, Leslie? Well, the life support was switched off on Friday evening and we were told that he'd have a few hours to live. Mm-hmm. And um, we stayed in that hospital three days and three nights waiting for him to pass on. And he's still hanging in. What age is he? 56. And when he was knocked down by the push bike going in the wrong direction, the courier on the push bike, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously he didn't realise there and then how serious his head injury was. No, because he was still conscious, but he lost consciousness at about in St Vincent's at about 7.30 that evening and he's never regained oh. consciousness and the brain damage is so severe that there's no hope at all for any kind of recuperation. I mean, we're talking about a man that's just sitting in a, lying in a bed waiting to die because his brain has been so severely damaged by that person's reckless actions that they didn't even think the consequences. I mean, they can't even have been looking where they were going to mow my dad down like... How did you find out that Roger Handy had passed away then a few days later? The accident, I believe, was a Friday. Um, and he passed away perhaps four or five days later. I had heard through um, phoning the hospital. Um, I had been walking into a, a customer's office a couple of days after um and heard my voice coming out of a radio, or my, my name, rather, coming out of a, na- a radio. Um, and it's really caught me. I thought, this is crazy. What's, what's this? And I was walking down the stairs, and I was in the printer's office, and the, the guy working there hit the, the off button. I said, well, what's this? You know, so, yeah, um, information had started flying around at that point, and... Um, it had it, it had it had drawn quite a bit of attention. Um, so 
as I said to you, I heard about Roger's death um, on a late afternoon. Um, uh, yeah, even just sitting here thinking about it, it's, 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 it's quite surreal. Did you ever speak to any of his family? Um, no, not directly. Um, I would have met his family at the inquest. Um, and obviously I've, I've tried to make contact, yeah, since. It was the paramedic I met outside, who was outside having a cigarette, actually, who turned around, recognised me, turned around, said, um, you're the guy that... And I said, yeah. And he said, I just want to tell you something. I said, yeah. He said, this is going to be really important for you. I said, what? He said, that man didn't have a bad word to say about you in the back of the ambulance. He spoke really highly of you. You should know that. I am, um, and those words were were so important to me, so important to me. You were nicknamed the Killer Courier. I was nicknamed the Killer Courier, yeah. And in as much as I had people around me and and friends and family and and whatnot telling me, look, it was this, it was that, it was a night. Those words you just said to me there literally bounced around inside my skull. The first one being um, the important one. I'm not here to hurt you. We were together for nine years, but we were only been married for two years. Not long after the accident um, and Roger's death, I set about on a quite a distinct course of, I guess, self-destruction. That's very hard. We thought we had our whole lives ahead of us. I don't want to say heroin found me, but it almost felt that way. It felt that way. The need for money became really intense very quickly. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith, with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy. A special thank you to RTE Archives, Isabel Junius, Rory Tevlin and Graeme Davidson. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75-euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish independent. Terms and conditions apply.